Welcome to this long breath. You'll be used to Navjoy, Jenny and I having discussions about the topics we cover in the podcast, but sometimes we only get a chance to include a brief bit of a much longer conversation with our guests. In these podcasts, we're going to bring you some of these more in-depth conversations. This first one is with philosopher and author Tom Chatfield. He literally wrote the book on critical thinking and explained to me the ways in which the heuristics we use in our everyday thoughts, those shortcuts in our thinking, can be hijacked by biases. Cognitive bias describes the fact that under certain situations, our gut instincts and natural inclinations can lead us into error. So what's important to say is that most of the time we use, you know, sort of cognitive rules of thumb, sometimes called heuristics, to come up with pretty good answers to pretty complex questions rapidly. You know, we pick what we want to wear, we decide what kind of thing we, we, we like, that we don't like, you know, we, we make decent everyday choices. But under certain situations, these instincts lead us into predictable forms of error. And one of the most famous sources of error in the research literature is the availability bias, which is produced by a cognitive shortcut whereby we treat how easily something comes to mind, how readily available that information is to us. We treat that as synonymous with its accuracy or importance. And a very simple example of this is something like advertising, whereby associating a very famous face or voice with a product sort of activates this fondness for familiarity. It makes us more likely to remember it. It makes it stickier. And thus, we tend to unconsciously equate that with being good, with being important, with being reliable. When, of course, in fact, as so often in advertising and politics, what people are doing is hacking our behavioural shortcuts in order to manipulate us or achieve I just wonder if um, some of the discussions I have with patients about tests or testing, uh, you know, it seems a, a blood test result is, is far more powerful than, you know, uh, a collection of symptoms or um, know, something else, um, maybe because it's, is that is that a similar thing that it's, it's available, you can see it, you know, it's, um, you kind of equate it to the truth where actually it might be much more complicated than that. Absolutely, yes. And I think, you know, obviously we can only use that which is available to us to think, to work mm. stuff out. You know, it's it's the way that a mind works. But the problem is, you know, if you, something is in the news a lot, if there's a huge amount of coverage around something, everyone is going to walk into mm. a consultation and say, well, what about that? What about this wonder cure? What about mm. this disease? And similarly, if you, as a physician and, and the people you're trying to help, are presented with you know a range of kind of, of vague symptoms, and then there's one particular thing that looks like a result that looks different to the others, then that available evidence can, so to speak, be used disproportionately mm. in governing your thinking because people want to be able to arrive yeah. at a verdict have a sense of control gain what they think is understanding it can be very difficult indeed to keep sufficient uncertainty alive 
in situations where perhaps on both sides of the desk, the physician and the patient, are wanting to kind of grasp mm, at some mm. certainty amid a sea of uncertainty yeah. and difficulty. And I'm just thinking in terms of vitamin D tests and low vitamin D results. It may well be the cause for a, a combination, often a combination of vague symptoms. Um, and I suppose it's about the communication that this this may be the cause, may be the solution, but actually there may also be some other explanation which we all need to um, come back to perhaps if, if the treatment doesn't work. Of course, and GPs, I guess, are very skilled mm. at this kind of very difficult communication when you're you know, trying to say to people, we have some evidence and the evidence is associated with these things and it's limited in these ways and it does and doesn't tell a certain information. It's enormously difficult and I'm, I admire greatly someone's ability in a kind of practical health-related urgent situation to keep on communicating this kind of uncertainty. And again, it's very tempting, you know, for a patient to sort of think of their physician as a guru, as a saviour, as someone who has the answer, or for a physician to, to, for a physician to play mm. that role and want to save someone. And so I think, you know, how to find an honest role that doesn't overstate and this is where we get back into something a little bit like category errors in that, you know, what one doesn't want to do is end up putting something in a box marked disease with, you know, a kind of cause and effects and a known mm. mechanism when in fact it belongs in a box called syndrome or mm. observations or ongoing mm. investigation. And actually, you know, it's very, very important to communicate this stuff honestly without mm. overpromising perhaps more important, I think, than any other kind of communication around healthcare, because people latch onto things. It is what our minds do. And, you know, the media and politicians are often, not always, some of the very worst mm. offenders in this front, and they can then create conditions of almost a kind of sort of hysterical over-focus mm. on one thing. Yes, I, I know who you're referring to. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's so true, isn't it? I'm just thinking again about the the consultation and uh, you know having to avoid the temptation to you know to use the term disease or to speak about something like a disease. Um, it's sort of easier to sell. It's what almost what the patient wants to some some patients may may want to um, to hear. And um, and there's so much pressure f from society, from the medical profession, even um, to to think in that way. Yes, there's an extraordinary amount of pressure. And again, you know, the technological context is part of this. Yeah. Because, you know, when you use a search engine, you put in a question and you get mm. answers. That's the way these things work. Ask a question, get answers. And if you can do that online at home every day, then why can't you do that when you walk into a doctor's surgery? Surely, with all that knowledge out there, there is an answer. And of course, the problem is that with all that knowledge out there, there's an almost infinite number mm. of answers what you need is a really good question and a really good question is one that respects and preserves complexity rather than seeking to close mm. it down i'm just wondering if um has anyone thought of making a search engine which kind of gives you an answer like a gp <laughs> like uh here's 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 I, a range I love of uncertainties that idea. of course the difficulty is that search engines are businesses and so there's something brutally Darwinian about this arena. If I made a search engine that sort of paused and gave you a probability range and tried to be terribly clever, probably everyone would get very fed up with it and go to Google because that presents uncertainty. What I would say though is that it is 
true both that there are more kind of quick wrong answers out there than ever before and also that the raw data a testament to the complexity and uncertainty of medical research and knowledge is also more accessible than ever before and one of the very best things you can do in this field I think as a as a GP as an individual is simply follow a diversity of well-informed people and crowdsource so to speak your uncertainty and try and gauge it by not seeking one oracular single mm. source by looking across a range of good sources and triangulating between them you know on a good day this kind of preservation of uncertainty is what we do by performing multiple mm. searches consulting with multiple sources and again not just going with this sort of tempting availability effect whereby the top result on the first page of Google defines what we think about something and how we frame our understanding full stop I have to ask you about Twitter at this point then because um because that seems a great example where I don't know what percentage of people are active on Twitter but presume very low percentage um and you must surely get a lot more of these um biases I certainly feel like there are yes I mean social media is a swamp of bias it's a swamp of emotion. It's an information environment which is structurally indifferent to truth in the sense that what governs the, the spread of ideas and messages and their sharing is first and foremost their emotional impact and only way down the line their truth content. And this is mm. another very famous uh, cognitive shortcut known as the affect heuristic. The affect heuristic is our tendency to respond to something in terms of its perceived value and truth content um, emotionally, to treat our emotional response, our emotional intensity as a proxy for you know, truth content and meaningfulness and so on. And this is absolutely fine when making everyday decisions. We would be paralyzed if we didn't have a strong innate preference for chocolate ice cream over pistachio or vice versa but when it comes to things like messaging about disease messaging about health and so on it is incredibly dangerous and makes us incredibly vulnerable to manipulation you know my strong recommendation with social media is if you use it and if you feel you benefit from it nevertheless step back from it don't get caught in the relentlessness of the maelstrom constantly mm -hmm. if you find out something on it go back to the source pause, slow down. Speed, above all, is the enemy of good thinking, because speed is all about fast, unchecked emotional reactions. It's about leaping to conclusions. It's the opposite of caution, second thoughts, and critical engagement. And of course, speed is built into the very fabric mm -hmm. of so many online services for you know mm -hmm. commercial reasons for these kind of darwinian reasons so there's huge challenges around that not least on the policy front because you know if you have a tidal wave of interest in something or anger or whatever then it's very easy to come up with hasty unhelpful ill-considered mm -hmm. responses rather than to address root causes Brilliant, like that. <laughs> um, the one bias I haven't mentioned yep. that I guess has huge relevance is what's mm. known as confirmation bias. And this is justly famous because it describes the fact that when faced by a wealth of evidence or information, 
people are just far more naturally likely to cherry pick the bits that confirm or support things they already believe or, or would like to be true than they are to seek out stuff that contradicts or challenges it. And of course this is what randomized control trials and the whole scientific method are designed to push back against to submit things to meaningful tests but even among you know rational trained scientists it's very hard to escape confirmation because of course you have to so to speak decide which area you wish to investigate you have to decide which trials you're going to pay attention to in your in your daily life you're bombarded by information and in a way i think you know a lot of our efforts to think more critically today entail a kind of constant low-level resistance to confirmation bias, a sort of constant willed habit of putting ideas to a test, of challenging them, of every now and then just pausing to make sure you haven't been driven too far and too fast by unexamined assumptions. Bringing all this background to vitamin D then, um, I can just see that there's so many different things we need to be aware of to um, when we're when we're thinking about the relevance of vitamin D, both in COVID nineteen and generally, um, uh, and yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a swamp, really. Um, it, it's very hard to know how to to really um, move forward, I guess. That's right, and in a way, you've captured the essence of it. There, it's incredibly tempting to want to somehow tidy up the swamp, to drain the swamp, if you like, to borrow a, a famous political phrase and what is difficult but very important I think is to preserve complexity while nevertheless being able to act and on the one hand I think resisting category errors is very important resisting the label of causation resisting the label of disease keeping complexity alive so that above all you don't shut down the most useful and important kind of thinking around vitamin D and interlinked factors which is skeptical investigative thinking and this of course is what fuels RCTs. But even though one is conducting these trials and uh, the research is progressing, I think it's very important just in general for the community of researchers and physicians not to be dominated by the availability, by the intensity of the interest around this, not to fail to look into other areas. We call this opportunity cost, the simple idea that doing one thing has an unseen cost because of course you're not doing something else while you're doing that and you know if it turns out that the great hope is not such a great hope all that time you could have spent elsewhere uh, could be very costly but I think while it's also very tempting to sort of hold out for empirical validation or lack of validation in fact to sustain a meaningful pragmatism is also very important when it comes to prevention, when it comes to the kind of dynamics we see in this very complicated pandemic situation, there is nothing inherently wrong with making cautious and qualified recommendations around low harm, low risk, quote unquote, natural interventions that may do some good, that may have some impact upon spreading potentially exponential negative consequences. And in this sense, you know, pragmatism and RCTs, they're not opposites, they're not in combat. They're different ways of trying to address reality rather than wanting it to be one thing or another, rather than wanting to say you should do this, you shouldn't do that, this is what the evidence says. What the evidence says is, as I understand it, a bit of a mess that one needs to keep thinking about carefully while still being able 
to make pragmatic, sensible, helpful recommendations to people. I guess above all, don't pretend to know that which you don't know. Don't over-focus on that which is available to the exclusion of other things. And don't be kind of backed into a corner by labels and categories that you're misapplying because you don't yet know where the thing you're talking about even belongs. So, that was Tom Chatfield, author and philosopher. I'll include a link to his work in the podcast text. As always, we'll be delighted to hear from you, so let us know what you think about the podcast on social media, in a review, or by email. That's practice at bmj.com. We'll be back next week with more Deep Breath In. This time we'll be looking at pill checks, and why those contraceptive appointments might not be so quick and easy as we all think. <laughs>